We got a bunch of feedback. While, About what? While we were on hiatus. It's been oh. two weeks. Uh-huh. Which is why we're rusty. Yeah. <laughs> Are you going to start doing sound effects That's now? That's rust. That's not a... No, we're not going to do that. Okay. We uh, can edit that out. Two, so, two, uh, a couple things. Okay. At least two. I, maybe there are more than two. At least two. Did we get any feedback, Joe? We did. And if we talk about two items, we will have talked about at least two. So. Well, one one bit of feedback I know mentioned that we should introduce ourselves at the beginning. Hi, I'm Could, Joe. <laughs> like that? Well, I, we... I think this it, is Joe. <laughs> and this 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 uh, this is listener Adam, who, who we'll talk more about. Um, mm. Wonderful person. And, and wrote a really delightful email to us. Um, he did. That's true. Uh, former student of mine. And um, you know, introduced himself as if I might not remember him. And of course, I do. And uh, But one thing he said, you know, when we don't introduce ourselves, he's like, have I missed the beginning of it? Mm. And so one of the reasons I guess we do the kind of a cold open, we just, because we just cut it. We, we start talking. Right. I don't know when the episode's going to begin. You know, pretty much how this works. There's a peek behind the curtain. But here, this is I'm going to lift the kimono. Before you, before you open your kimono, oh, um, <laughs> I think what we could do is we could, you could say, hi, Joe, and I could say, hi, Christian, and then people would know, and then that could be there, and then we could add whatever, cut out whatever other stuff we wanted to. Yeah, but yeah, all right, so the, that's right. So what, what we do is we record, I cut off the beginning, I cut off a little bit at the end, and we ship the show. We yes. try to keep it that way because I, we just don't have the staff or anything else to yeah, do it's difficult to do more than better that. editing than that and right. and and in fact it, i think the show gets worse as you as you cut it up more mm. um because as you're doing it live you're thinking about the editing no no yeah. we're just this is just a conversation we just do what we the do the other thing is that it's kind of, roll. it is it is a miniature of uh of of law in its larger practice which is you're always joining a conversation which is already going on exactly yeah that's kind of the conceit of it i guess i'm always feeling a little anxious that you missed something important yeah but I, I think in our case, our listeners know that probably didn't, probably didn't that miss anything. That isn't true. Probably not. Yeah. Probably not. Let's face it. Um, Hi, Christian. Today, though, maybe, I don't know. You know, we got a, we got a great guest today. So anything could happen. Anything could happen. We're going to do this feedback. Now, I, I will say this. On the last episode, you, um, you promised a guest to end all guests. I did. And, and although it's interesting because it turned out to be completely right. Although not at all the person who I thought I was referring to at the time. But it, again, it turned out to be completely right. So that just goes to show how I accidentally stumble into. Right. So un- under pressure, Condoleezza Rice declined to uh, <laughs> attend today's show. Exactly. Who wants pickets? Yeah, we'll, we'll introduce our guest in a second. You, but you feel free to kind of chime in at any point. Don't don't hold back. and you, until, until your name is revealed, it's kind of a mystery. It would be a mystery, but for the fact that it appears in the episode title and everybody already knows who it is. But let's pretend that that yes. hasn't happened. Well, I certainly don't know who I am. So we're, we're already, you know, there is actually a third bit of follow-up. We'll get back to Adam's note in a second. Uh, you, Joe, we got a B. We got a what? We got our first B. First on, what? On iTunes. First B? What does, yep. that, what does yep. that mean? Four, four stars, Ugh. not five. So inappropriate. <laughs> Here's why it's inappropriate. Because I didn't know that, and that means the person didn't reach out to us and help and let us explain why a five is what yeah, we is appropriate. We were really clear about this, right? We, we want were, you to rate we've been very iTunes. explicit about it. If it's a five. If you feel tempted to give anything other than a five, please let us know. <laughs> Says, we, you maybe, can reach us on email right. at oral argument podcast uh, oral argument podcast at gmail.com. Right. Or you could send a, a message over Twitter. Right. 
well, there's no good reason. I, I feel like we're only, you know, we're, we're not doing anything to convince this person to change from a B to an A because the, the comment was a little less banter runs, runs a bit long. <laughs> so, you know, you know, the show's not going to be for everybody. It's, we said this from the beginning. That's true. This is, we're not making a show that everybody will like. We're hoping to make a show that a few people, maybe even very few people will love. Yes. That's the idea. Uh, all right. So uh, let's get to, you want to get to Adam's feedback? Indeed. Listener Adam. Uh, do you have it in front of you? Uh, I did, but you said you had it, and therefore I don't oh, have it anymore. Boy. All right. This is this is standard practice. I, I call it the Christian bungle, or CB. So the, so he writes in about uh, an experience in moot court, mm. um, and this is about oral argument, a follow-up to our, uh, our episode pre- with Tom Goldstein. Yeah, a great episode <laughs> right? with Tom Goldstein. Uh, yeah, follow-up to the episode with Tom Goldstein, and... Uh, Writes in about Moot Court, where he gave a... Uh, he used a, a line from King Lear. Oh, yeah. And I remember did not, it was that. not received well, right? Because it was thought... Um, um, he says, I was criticized for using a line that the lawyer actually used at uh, the Supreme Court. So, this you know, it's not like he was doing something unusual in oral argument. This is something, you know, people quote Shakespeare. They've done it before. Uh, but he says, context is everything. At the Supreme Court, where there are actual parties... It may be permissible to use strange analogies or occasional levity if it helps uncover truth or at least allows the judges to coordinate their thinking. At moot court, this is the uh, pretend fake practice court that they do in law school. Right. Um, uh, no real disputants exist and, and farce is always near. Only the reputation of the student and the moot court program is at risk. When I mentioned King Lear, I, apparent, I, I appeared flip because I threatened the institution of moot court. When the Supreme Court lawyer refers to King Lear, he's using a powerful image to advance his client's case. Maybe. So it's like breaking character at an at, during an SNL skit. Yeah, it's and, like when they when Seth Meyers starts to laugh when he's doing the news on SNL. It's not funny. Oh, I, I think we're going dis- to. I think argument. we're. I think we're going to disagree with that. Yeah, yeah. I'm just. I'm, would be ma- the- I'm making the argument. Okay. All right. That Adam made close yeah. to farce. Farce is at hand. Therefore, well, that's it must what he's saying, right? That that, uh, that that because it is almost a farce already, right. because it's, it is pretend. It's too close to the bone to it, make a joke. Exactly right. Um, so he says, moot court is a lens to view oral arguments. Suggests the primacy of ritual. Practicing for moot court felt like rehearsing a play. The practice judges never decided. Uh, the practice judges never decided the case on its merits. They critiqued the impression we made. I argued both sides in every round, which only heightened my sense that flattery and performance mattered most. The conflicting aims of oral argument, theater, civics lesson, persuasion, coordination, makes it a great topic for study or podcast. Oral arguments do not depend on actual disputants, and appeals can be resolved without oral arguments. And yet, oral arguments persist in many courts, including the Supreme Court. Oral arguments may be good civics teachers, and they align with vague notions of lawyers, courtrooms, and justice. And then he talks about how, I think I mentioned this in the podcast, but as a student, he really liked that I used audio clips from a couple of Supreme Court cases. Yep. Um, I think I used it in Eldred v. Ashcroft, the copyright extension mm. case, and in Kilo v. City of New London. Um, and uh, and he liked it because it emphasized what I told them explicitly that uh, real le- real what he says he, the quote he uses real legal thinking uncovers why every case is hard, mm. right? So the the, or, the oral arguments can sometimes show why the case is difficult, whereas the aim of too many opinions, as we've said before, is to make a case seem easy. Um, Indeed. So uh, I thought it was a really interesting email. Uh, I don't know if I have more thoughts about it right now, but I'd like more. Do you, I don't know. Do you have anything to say? I don't. Okay. 
boy, because this, it is boy, very this is going well. Hmm? <laughs> I said, boy, this is going well. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think you made but, a lot of great points. You know, it's, it, yeah, yeah. I think that is the, you know, there is a, there's an amount of, there's a certain amount of theater, certain amount of civics <laughs> um, performance, you know. I think so. Here's the one thing I might I might disagree when he says when he says confidently that cases can be decided without oral arguments. It, I think if that if that were true, uh, there'd be more a lot more agitation to eliminate them, and I don't sense that there is even unsuccessful agitation to eliminate them. They've been greatly curtailed in some places. Various procedures are used, but I think my sense is a lot of judges still think a robust oral arguments are helpful to them, if not dis- determining how they decide a case, determining how they uh, handle all of the issues within a case and organize them internally, what they spend their, the bulk of their discussion on, what they treat as sort of secondary or tertiary, um, and kind of how they, how they craft things. I- I've noticed a lot in recent years, judges actually putting more citations to oral argument transcripts in written opinions especially when it relates to important concessions or, or important, um, important, uh, yeah, factual point, assertions right. made oh, by one of yeah. the parties. And, and that's an indication that they do actually find it very helpful. Yeah. Well, I, I uh, look, we're going to drop a, a link to the prior show and where we talk about a lot of these issues, uh, you know, in, in the last show, because they're, you know, I, I linked in that, in the show notes for that to, uh, a number of, papers about procedures in various courts to do something different with respect to oral argument, like issuing opinions before the oral argument, Yep, provisional opinions. And I think the kind of law and economist answer that if oral arguments weren't valuable, they wouldn't exist only goes so far as, you know, it kind of runs into this idea that maybe tradition is a powerful force on its own. Yeah. And I, I wasn't making um, qu- quite as, I wasn't making the argument about the economist joke. Yeah. Right. That $20 bill can't possibly be there or someone right, would have right, picked right, it up right, already. Right. I wasn't quite being that silly. Just almost that silly. Yeah. One last bit of follow-up. Final bit of follow-up. Uh, we got a fantastic shout-out on we This Week in Law. It was very a, cool. A, a, um, a, I would say famous, famous podcast. Yeah. On, on totally. The, uh, if this, you're in episode 258, you're famous. Yeah. It's on the Twit Network this week in tech, right? Uh, uh, that network, pod t- podcast network, and uh, uh, we'll link up the episode where they give us a shout out. And and it was an episode on which Christina Mulligan appeared. Yes, former, I would say oral argument alum. I would say Christina would agree with this. She got her start on oral argument. Totally, yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh, and and appeared to talk about similar things on on this weekend uh, this, this weekend week along with yeah. Denise Howell and and and. Um, Denise was nice enough to give us some nice uh, tweets on the Twitters and mm-hmm. uh, and linked, linked to us and got a lot of her followers to come and listen to the show in so addition to a, saying something better on the show. Christina, battle-hardened by her experience with us, was able to uh, appear on This Week in Law slaying uh, falsehoods and faulty logic right, left, and center. Yeah. Yeah. I would say she's an expert podcaster at this point. Yes. Yeah, and Sm- today smiting, you know, feasting on the on the tears of her podcast enemies, <laughs> because we helped her yeah. discover that inner. Warrior. It was a great episode, and this week in law in general is a really fun podcast. Yeah, a lot lot of great um lot of great thoughts on that. Uh, today we're going to level up a new podcaster. Mm. 
Speaking of battle hardening. And he's pouring his coffee right now. This is uh, Oral Argument brand coffee. <laughs> Out of a Chemex. It's a dark roast. Uh, we've got we got Nathan Chapman with us today. Oh, amazing. Nathan Chapman, um, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so pleased to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, you're, you're welcome. This is gonna. This is a very polite show today. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I um, think he's going to learn us some manners. You think? Well, I think we need it. Well, we're gonna. You know. So, <laughs> what, Joe, let me just ask you this: mm. in polite society, what? Give me. Give me an example. What? What kind of topics should one avoid? So you've got your sex. You're not supposed to talk about sex. <laughs> my you're not saying you're not my saying sex this, or just yeah, sex. I mean, anybody's. I is this, are you making an assertion? <laughs> <laughs> you're not supposed to talk about politics. Mm-hmm. You're not supposed to talk about religion. Hmm. Hmm. We may violate all three of those handy rules of thumb today. I was not aware we're going to talk about the sexy time today. Mm, anything could happen. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Anything could happen. The words of Wyclef Sean. <laughs> So, we are going to talk about religion, and in particular, the Town of Greece case. Mm. Uh, Town and, of Greece against Galloway. That's right. Uh, I have to give a, a disclosure here. Okay. The opinion which the Supreme Court reversed uh, um, was written by the Second Circuit, in particular by Judge Calabresi, for mm-hmm. whom I clerked. Mm. Uh, and although I'm open to persuasion, I tend to agree with his opinion in that case uh, and uh, and therefore with the dissent in the Town of Greece case. But I, I want to disclose because, you know, this is a transparent podcast. Transparency is the highest value in this podcast. You you look quizzical. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that I... You're asking me to sacrifice now and forever all use of the noble law, and I don't know that I can buy that. No, it's a, transparency is the highest value. That's why we post all of our bank records... All of our financial statements on the <laughs> on the website for anybody to get to. That's so, right. I forgot. Uh, I, the listener who thinks that there's too much banter. It's just crazy. Oh, he's like, unsubscribe, unsubscribe. You can't unsubscribe yeah, fast really. enough. Really? Yeah. We're, we're keep, getting, keep your darn four. I feel like this is a really slow start today, Joe. It's <laughs> it's like a, it's like a car that you've set a car that you've left idle for a couple of weeks or something like that, right? Yeah. And you come back to it, and you just expect it to crank back. You don't you it can't expect it to crank back? Yeah, up. it doesn't really work. You got to warm it up a little bit. Mm-hmm. We got to let the glow plugs warm up. <laughs> this is your, you're in the <laughs> more sound effects from you today. Well, let's, so let's talk so about let's this town talk of about Greece. This case. So, so for Nathan, is this is this case rightly decided by the Supreme Court? And then we're going to get into what it's about. But let's start first of all. Top Can line. Can we actually talk about how, what what a bad question that is? No, no. Why don't we answer it first, and then we can talk about whether it's a bad question? Okay. What do you think, Joe? Rightly decided. I refuse to answer <laughs> okay. such a catastrophically bad question. All right, Nathan. What do you think? I think it was rightly decided. I think it was a superb question. <laughs> so we are talking about the the sovereign debt case, right? The, yeah, the Greek Irish sovereign that's debt. That's right. Case. This is this this is actually town of Greece and not country of town Greece. of Greece and county of Galway. Mm-hmm. Um, sovereign debt. Well, I think it was rightly decided, but I have to say this isn't the only thing the European Court of Human Rights has issued this week that I found inspiring. So what? Do, what, do, what I for one will be uh, moving. Promptly to Spain after this podcast and, and requesting that the Google take down uh, this podcast. Mm. Oh yes, yeah. Then we will. Then they'll have to do this it. Is, yeah, irrelevant, irrelevant. This is like uh, you know old information that's irrelevant. You can take it down, right to be forgotten. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think it was rightly decided. I think uh, mm-hmm. Greece versus Galloway was rightly decided, and cool. I think it's a, a perfect question to start this conversation. 
Yeah, let's just let's just you know first impressions out on the table. Sure, I mean, you, and then we're going to delve into it to figure out why you are wrong about that. <laughs> sure. <laughs> no, well, I, or, or maybe why I am wrong. Yeah. I'm open minded. It's going to take a long time. Let's, uh, Joe. What? Where do you stand? Right? Wrong? Oh, indifferent. Um. Oh, suddenly it's a good question because Nathan asked it. I get how this goes. He didn't ask exactly the same question. We mm. can roll the tape back, but I'll proceed. Okay, proceed. Uh, knowing that I'm right. That he, that's not exactly how he phrased it. Mm-hmm. Um, Please proceed, Governor. <laughs> I uh, I'm more persuaded that uh, I'm more persuaded by Justices Kagan and Breyer <laughs> and their their sense of the right way to deal with uh, the fact of pluralism, which is a fact I think everybody's trying to cope with. I think everyone on the court is actually they agree about a lot. Um, seems to me, uh, but I think the and like the Second Circuit, the the insight that if you're going to have any of these prayers, you need to have prayers. Uh, you need to have lots of active efforts to have prayers offered by people of many different faith traditions and humanists as well. Um, that that sounds right to me. Okay, so at this point, I'm going to cu- I'm going to break in on behalf of the listeners who are saying, "What in the world is this case about?" Mm. <laughs> There's been a mention of sovereign debt, which this case is not about. Not right. the one we're talking about. Uh, so, who wants to summarize this case? How do we how do we talk about it? So, this is a legislative prayer case. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a, in a, 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 a local legislature, basically a city council. You can think about it. Uh, so, it's a city council meeting, basically, and uh, and has had a history since 1999 of opening up with a prayer solicited um, by members of the I guess the uh, city staff or town staff uh, from various clergy around the county and i guess they had obtained from the um around the town around the town the town yeah Yeah. i I, city county i keep going back and forth city and town are basically the same but county would be something a little bit different but anyway uh they had a list of all the uh religious assemblies within their borders uh within the borders of the town and from all uh, appearances selected somewhat randomly among uh among that list and invited leaders of the various religious congregations. I think actually they went down the list in order and called. And if someone wanted to do it, they let them. Oh, okay. I believe that's what the record says. It's also not at all clear that it was a list of all of the houses of worship in town. It was a list, a directory that the chamber of commerce published. And so that may or may not have been comprehensive. You'd need to explore actually the degree to which the chamber of commerce uh, created a comprehensive list. So each for each meeting, the the uh, leader or, or the representative of the religious um, community congregation that was selected would come in and, and give the prayer, the opening prayer. And for basically a decade, uh, these were exclusively Christian prayers. Um, and these were not the kind of um, anodyne uh, ceremonial deist type prayers that a lot of you may be familiar with uh, that don't invoke Jesus Christ don't invoke any particular Christian, uh, uh, a peculiarly, 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 yeah, Christian uh, terms. You know, this is just maybe God the Father, that sort of thing. Um, No, but these uh, invoke Christianity in particular, and sometimes, uh, and at times even, um, called out people who objected as dissenters and and, and I, I forget the language, but maybe we can, we'll get to that in, in a moment. Uh, but finally, people do object after about a decade, and then the town makes an effort to include people of uh, different religious faiths uh, to give the prayer. Um, 
This was challenged uh, in federal court, went up to the Second Circuit, and the Second Circuit found that this practice, uh, in 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 fact, you know, the the entire practice viewed in context violated the Establishment Clause. Um, that this was uh, um, an unconstitutional entangling of religious views with uh, with governmental practice. Um, and we're going to link up in the show notes a bunch of the cases in the court's Establishment Clause canon. Uh, but there had been earlier, much earlier, a, a case called Marsh, which upheld legislative prayer in general uh, in the Nebraska legislature, I think it was. Now, um, and, you know, what's really interesting yeah. about the Nebraska case, that's Marsh against Chambers, is um, not only did the, the Nebraska legislature open with this, uh, open with a prayer, uh, the Nebraska, le- and Nathan, please correct me because you're the expert in the area. I am not. But uh, my recollection oh, oh, is I, that- I will. Cool. Uh, the, my my recollection is the Nebraska legislature actually employed a chaplain. Yeah. So there was an individual who was on the Nebraska state payroll, right? Uh, for the purpose of so it wasn't it wasn't just volunteers like the town of Greece that you just described, where people who are clergy or or other congregation members in these various things who volunteer. The Nebraska case is in many ways, you might think, a tougher case in the sense that you've got a, a paid state employee who's, whose job is to pray uh, in the context yeah. of this Nebraska legislature opening, right? So in a That's way, right. that makes the case a harder case, the it, Nebraska case. It, I think I think so. You know, I think one thing that's important to keep in mind about the opinions in the Greece case is that none of the justices— um, objected to the result in Marsh versus Chambers, right? They all accepted that 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 a state legislature having um, a Presbyterian clergy member on its payroll delivering uh, prayers that were mostly um, banal to whom it may concern prayers, but some of which were blatantly Christian um, occasionally, that that was that would not violate the establishment clause. So at where they disagreed here was applying um, the rationales in that case to the facts at hand here, and and I think that there were several things different about this case that made it worth looking at. Um, one was, you know, it's a, it's a town, it's a town meeting, and um, in the context of this meeting, there are folks showing up from the town petitioning for variances for zoning rules and things like that from the committee. Um, and so unlike in a legislative session, uh, the prayer is being offered sort of in the, literally in the direction of, um, spoken in the direction of townspeople who are there, um, oftentimes petitioning their representatives for, for goodies. Uh, right. So they've got business to transact as opposed to a legislature where, for the general meeting of the legislature opening a session in the morning, the chaplain stands up, the people who are being addressed are the members of the legislature. And there's not like there's someone there. It's not like it's a hearing where someone is going to request something. Exactly. So that's an important factual distinction. It's a, it's a big, could be be an important factual. Right. So that that's one. Um, And the other is that there were so many um, blatantly Christian prayers offered and um, no, no, uh, no non-Christian prayers offered. Now, again, remember this in Nebraska was a Presbyterian clergy member who's on the, yeah. you know, on, on the paid staff. So it's, it's not as though, um, you know, it's sort of the, the best he's going to be able to do with any kind of sincerity is to, is to make it a, a ceremonial kind of, um, to God 
kind of prayer. Um, and so part of the question I think that the, the court is wrestling with here is, is if this is a problem, if what's happening in Greece is a problem, but what happened in Marsh versus Chambers is not a problem, then how can what how can Greece fix it? What can Greece do or must Greece do to fix it? And would that be better or worse than what Greece has actually done in terms of the religion clauses? Yeah. At, so there's there's one question here is how to interpolate the court's existing cases, right? And, and, I, and I want to talk about that. That's at the doctrinal level. What would make for decent doctrine here, mm-hmm. assuming one wants to uphold Marsh in some full form? <laughs> now, what the, I think it's worth noting that what the court did here, although I don't know if it was in the section that was not, maybe you can correct me here, but I don't know if it was in section 2A or 2B, and 2A was not the opinion of the court. Um, but the but the court um, disapproved of the endorsement test in this area. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that was the, the Crutch case. What was the name of that case again? Um, Allegheny County. Allegheny that, County, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, but I don't remember if that was in the opinion of the court that that was done. It's 2B that was not the opinion of the court. Um, oh, and I don't remember yeah, where it was I, located either. But. So the, I, I, my, I'm a little rusty on some of these things here, yeah. but I, I, my sense is that most of the justices who had ever expressly adopted the endorsement test are gone. Yeah, o- O'Connor pioneered it in the in the crash, the first crash case, mm-hmm. um, and then uh, Souter and I think Stevens have both written opinions that relied on it and to some extent. And in a, the, in O'Connor's case in the, in the crash case, she, she developed it as a, I, I think from her perspective as a more nuanced way to do the, um, in, to do the lemon test and, and it's prong of, whether or not the government is advancing religion. This is a case called lemon, not exactly not right. the use of an actual lemon. Test. No, that's there's, there's, <laughs> yeah, no, no lemons were harmed in the making of that case. As right. far as I know. So the, the lemon test developed out of, um, you know, mid century, um, court cases, evaluating the constitutionality of state and local governments channeling money, um, indirectly, but, clearly to the benefit of um, uh, parochial schools. So almost exclusively Catholic schools, in fact, although they didn't specify and sort of single out Catholic schools, it just happened to be that didn't just happen to be, but it was the case that in those counties, they were exclusively Catholic schools. And so the court developed this test that came to be known as the lemon test um, that has three principal parts. And um, there are slight permutations on each of these parts, depending on which justice is writing the opinion. But, the idea is that the government um, has to have a sufficiently secular purpose for the law or regulation at issue. Um, the The regulation has to have a sufficiently secular effect, uh, and it cannot foster what the court has called excessive entanglement between religion and and um, the government. So, can I give you an example of what? Let me. I'd be interested to get your reaction about. It sounds like if a town uh, had a policy. Uh, that it's a town-supported fire engine service to put out fires would respond to everybody who called about a fire, sure. whether or not the caller was a church, uh, right. would would pass muster under that test. 
Sure. Because fighting fires, secular purpose, <laughs> fighting fire, secular effect, uh, putting out fires wherever they're started, whether or not it's a church, I don't think people would view that as entangling themselves in matters of doctrine or otherwise, right? So is that an example of something that yeah, would be okay? Yeah, that, that has kind of become the, the textbook sort of far end of the spectrum of, well, we... Surely we do that. Right. Surely that's permissible, even though, you know, it, it winds up benefiting the facilities of a religious organization. And so then the, it, all of this becomes a sort of um, question of degree, like many legal questions are right. of, well, can they, can the government provide a certain amount of money to help a, um, a parochial school make sure that its uh, facilities are up to code for purposes of safety of the students? Right. Well, the court, the court has said no, um, under the lemon test saying that the, the sort of result of that kind of thing is going to ena enable the institution to shift its budget somewhere else. And, and so, you know, m cash is fungible. So if we're giving money to the school to develop its, its gym, then it's going to be able to spend its money on, um, you know, whacking people's the, the back of students' hands when they get the Bible verse wrong, and that's going to have the effect of promoting religion. Um, and the only way that the government this is and this illustrates, I think, what many have identified as a uh, a difficulty of the lemon test, if not an incoherence. Uh, the only way that a government could have could both channel a um, secularly aimed benefit to religious institutions and make sure it stays on the secular side of things would be to engage in such oversight of the administration of that benefit that the government would effectively become entangled with the religious institution itself. So the very effort to avoid entanglement by way of prophylaxis would itself result in entanglement. Bingo. So, me, so that, that's a real problem. It's a catch-22 yeah. situation that is, has long been um, sort of identified and lamented in the context. And, and in reality, I mean, part of the question that could have been before the court here, they didn't spend much time on it at all, was you know whether to apply the lemon test in the contexts like this or whether the Chambers versus Marsh case should be applied straight up um, and whether that's an exception to the lemon test and how far that exception goes, et cetera. Um, but the court in the last couple of decades has taken what seemed to be pretty deliberate steps to limit the factual scenarios in which it applies the lemon test. Let me throw out a few things here and, and see what, what you agree with. And I'm just going to try to frame the debate at, at various levels. <laughs> First of all, number one, uh, I think that, um, this case is all about the court's membership because what we see here is Alito replacing O'Connor. And that represents a dramatic shift in, um, in doctrinal opportunities. Okay. Uh, second thing at the level of doctrine, um, I, this case seems to represent pretty clearly, uh, and I think they're explicit about this, the idea that for purposes of the Establishment Clause, uh, legislative prayer is in a category of its own, and we do not use the ordinary tests of which the Lemon Test may be one and may be uh, generative mm -hmm. uh, in order to evaluate these. And that the, I think the majority is, is pretty clear about that. And, and in concept, what that, what that means is like, what test do we use to measure whether government has become 
too entangled with religion to the point where uh, we can say that there's some kind of constitutional violation. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, in order to answer that question, you have to have some understanding of what the constitutional line is. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to have a line in this area? What are the harms that the Constitution is aiming to prevent, if any? Does it apply against states? Is it only against the federal government? What is the the purpose of the Establishment Clause? Mm -hmm. Once you know that, then you say, well, does it have a, does that purpose have a different kind of uh, effect in the legislative prayer area than it does, say, in the school prayer mm-hmm. area, where you have, you know, school children reciting the Lord's Prayer may raise a completely different set of issues, or government financial support uh, of churches. Yeah. Um, so, or support of social services, some of which are used by churches. Right. Right. And, and so, this, Kansas, some, things some of which, when the churches use them, they also include a little pamphlet, say, Believe in Jesus. For instance, um, I mean that's sure. that, that's sort of the the heart of the issues in, in those cases, right? Yeah. So that's why I just want to I wanted to do this at the beginning because I think one thing that can make conversations about this uh, difficult is because there are all kinds of different conversations are happening at the same time, mm-hmm. right? Uh, whenever you talk about Supreme Court cases in general, but in particular about establishment clause cases, right? So, yeah. uh, you know, one is just the raw counting to uh, counting to five, you know. Sure. So what makes for five votes, especially in an area in which the doctrine is somewhat, you know, unhelpful, right? The doctrine, mm-hmm. yep. you know, the the, the, the consensus, the O'Connor consensus, the O'Connor political compromise on establishment grounds, which was reflected, I think, in the endorsement test, was fragile in the sense that there were only five members who really were able to get behind it for right. various reasons. And right. that was a, a fragile in the sense that replacing her with Alito changes everything. Uh and then just doctrinally, right? Again, you can. What is the right tool mm-hmm. if you think there is a principle in the Constitution which is meant to speak to these cases of government involving itself in religious exercise, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then third, like, what is the what are the philosophical foundations mm-hmm. which are invested in this text about establishment and then reflected through mm-hmm. uh, the Fourteenth Amendment? And it's the Fourteenth Amendment that applies. Uh, that that causes this um, this section of the First Amendment, which was a restriction on congressional power, to apply against the states, mm-hmm. and so we have to ask like how that works, whether it works, and whether, as I want to argue, maybe in a little bit, mm-hmm. the Equal Protection Clause doesn't provide much more of an answer than uh, than I think people uh, give it credit for. Mm-hmm. Um, D- does but or ha- does not? It does. I think okay. the Equal Protection Clause is um, transformative in a way. If I wrote in this area, it would be about, of the, would be about the transformative idea of the Equal Protection Clause. How mm-hmm. you know? So you know, um, the Due Process Clause is the doctrinal uh, uh, linchpin on which the Supreme Court has hung incorporation. The this is uh, has right. hung like the enforcement of the Bill of Rights against the states after the Civil War amendments. The Due Process Clause in the Fourteenth Amendment. A number of scholars have argued it should be the Privileges and Immunities Clause of the Fourteenth Amendment, and you know. Akhil Amar uh, has written a book about that, and there are other scholars, too. We don't have to get into it all. I actually think the Equal Protection Clause, the more I think about it, is the right way to see the transformative nature of the transformative structural uh, uh, event that was the Reconstruction and the Civil War Amendments. But we don't have to get into that right now. I, I just wanted to kind of set up for discussion the broad range of issues so that when we do talk about it, and, and the, the listeners can kind of keep in mind um what the, the difference between talking about like the Supreme Court political economy, Supreme Court mechanics, and justices switching votes, and how these things are counted up to five, and how that, and then the doctrinal discussion about what you know, are we going to preserve the Marsh case, and then how do we interpolate all the cases so that we have something which is somewhat coherent? 
right? But separate from that is a question of kind of just philosophical approach. What is the Establishment Clause? What should it be? Is it what it should be, right? Or, it, or or do we have to take it as we find it, and as we and what methods should we use to find it? You know, all these questions so are very do you difficult. Think it's the better thing to focus on the third thing. I don't know. I mean, what we started by saying how, is the case rightly decided, right? Yeah, you did well, <laughs> and you answered that question when it was posed let's, by let's, Nathan. I'm going to start by yes, please start um, addressing the first, just because I think it's pretty easy to 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 answer. Mm-hmm. Um, I. I think it's impossible to know what O'Connor would have done in this case. Um, I think there are good reasons to think she would have been um, very sympathetic to Justice Kagan's view from the objecting townsperson. Right. You know? um, but I also think uh, there's reason to think that uh, she would have thought, you know, Chambers versus Marsh is kind of a, a unique thing in, in as a matter of tradition and history. And, what what this case boils down to is whether you're satisfied with the town's procedures at um, including as many different clergy people as possible, um, and that's a judgment call that I, I think it's it's hard to know it's hard to guess how O'Connor would have come down because she was um, not entirely predictable in this area, right? Uh, so um, I think it's easier to predict how Alito is going to come down on that, uh, mm-hmm. frankly. Um, and I think it was entirely, well, I don't know. About entirely. The closest to O'Connor here is Breyer, wouldn't you say? That this is yes. about, this is about, this is a matter of like a kind of judicial political judgment, all things considered. Yeah. About, well, he, right? Of course he doesn't use, those are the accurate words for what uh, he's doing. I think what he calls it is a legal judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it is a, if they're going to apply a standard like it, it seems like they've created for you know, how much is enough, what, what kind of effort is reasonable for inclusion, uh, which seems to me uh, at least doing a lot of lifting in, in the difference between the majority and the dissenting opinions, um, then, you know, it, it it's just a reasonable person standard. And a reasonable it, person, you mean, observe, this is the reasonable observer, whether they would have, what, what do well, you mean by that? The, it's the reasonable um, I don't know who, who, the, I mean, it, obviously it is, in, they're using it as a, uh, a proxy for whatever they personally think as, as the justices, but the, what they, they put it in more objective terms of sort of whether or not, um, they made reasonable efforts at inclusion. And you see this throughout the law, you know, did, if you're serving process, you know, did, were reasonable efforts made at service of process such that, um, you know, we can relate back service even after, though it occurred after, um, the statute of limitations has, t- has passed or something like that. Right. Um, and so the reasonable efforts is not a foreign concept to is it reasonable our procedural law at inclusion or is it, or, or, or is this uh, a reasonable observer test? Like would a reasonable townsperson feel excluded? Well, the two are related. Aren't I they? know they're I mean, related, <laughs> but they're not the same. And I have in mind a hypothetical. Imagine there's a, I agree. I agree with that. The dif- difference between those two is, is, Huge, and I think, frankly, that Justice Kagan's opinion includes a tension between those two differences. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, but we, maybe we can tease that out. Joe and I were talking about it a little bit the other day. So, well, no, here's the example I had in mind because yeah. I think examples are um, are key to kind of forming intuitions here. And so, uh, imagine there's a uh, religious sect which is a minority, but a large minority within the town, and and this religious sect simply does not believe in ceremonial prayers. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, they just, right. uh, 
um, as as actually many Christians do not believe in in such kind of you know um, there are injunctions in the Bible against I mean you know depending on how you read these so uh, but imagine that there is some minority and imagine that they're not Christian and so the message from um, uh, say Protestant Christians who are the ones who are selected to is anathema to them in some way you know at least is contradictory um, and so the town makes reasonable efforts under anyone's definition of reasonable to reach out to various religious groups to present <clears throat> prayers. But obviously this group declines. Sure. And so what happens at the meeting is consistently the delivery of prayers by the in-group, the majority religion, right. which is found to be unwelcome by the minority. Now is that, uh, I don't know how to ask this without kind of breaking through the walls of the original framework I suggested, but under the existing doctrine, and that's maybe what we're trying to tease out, mm -hmm. is that unconstitutional? I mean, I have in mind here that it might be under a reasonable observer test, but not under a test of reasonable efforts to include. I think that's right. I mean, another way to pose, I think the same question is to look at the two, um, alternatives that Kagan proposes would satisfy the establishment clause. Um, Kagan says that here Greece could have um, either strongly encouraged any prayer giver to give a non-sectarian prayer. Um, and she doesn't go far as so far as to say require um, because that might actually create different kinds of uh, first amendment problems, but we can talk about that another, yeah, yeah, later. Yeah. Um, but so that's one option It's just to sort of, they, they use what Congress does now as a sort of benchmark for that as an example um, or, um, you know, don't either do that or do it in a light, you know, somewhat frivolous way, apparently. Uh, but at the same time, and, you know, include lots of different viewpoints of religious viewpoints, um, maybe humanistic viewpoints within that, um, and include them all such that over the run of, you know, months, uh, an, an independent observer would think, oh, well, they're you know, they're sort of talking past one another. The town doesn't have any univocal view about religion um, other than, you know, it's doing it a little bit before the town meeting is fine. Um, and I, my, and the reason I, I pose that as an alternative way of asking the same question is because if under either one of those, you can imagine if what matters is the reasonable attendee, right? Right. There, there's going to be a reasonable attendee at any given meeting who's, going to feel ostracized by whatever's going on you know so if if you're playing roulette and it's a different clergy every week the person who shows up to you know to get a variance for their zoning it doesn't show up to the run of meetings who just shows up when they need a variance um and they're dealing with the person who's making a very sectarian you know prayer is going to feel like well you know what on earth is going on this is not yeah and that has me. to do with how much people know about what happens at the ordinary meeting right right and uh, and you think do you think that's important? Uh, I mean, I it, if what you are actually concerned about is the person who came for a variance, then I can't see how that would be. What you would need to do is figure out whether a reasonable person who comes for a variance in a town of ninety thousand people has an idea of the prayer practice that, at the board meetings. And now, I bet you everybody in Greece does, but in most 90,000 person towns across the country, they have no idea. They just want to go get their zoning variants. Right. This is why I, when I tried to begin to say before that the two ordinary observer and, 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 uh, what was the other label you used? This is reasonable efforts to include by Reason, the town. Right. So, right. so ordinary Internal observer and reasonable efforts to conclude the reason that they, I think, although they are distinct, they do remain connected is that you're going to have to make an assumption and, and you can, it can be brought out 
rather than remain implied, you're going to have to make an assumption about uh, or a presumption about what the ordinary observer knows. Mm -hmm. uh, in particular, and importantly, what the ordinary observer knows both about what happens in the run of meetings and what efforts are made to include people. Well, and, because and, both, the, right. both the majority and the dissenting opinions are rife with discussion about both predicates. Mm -hmm. What people know about what's going on in multiple meetings as against the concern of a person who attends only one, right. which is part of the context. And another part of the context is what efforts are made to reach out to people. Let, let me bracket one possible answer to this, uh, um, which some listeners may be thinking about, and that is that um, the whole idea of having religious prayer in advance of meetings is uh, is, is in, in a way which is inclusive and not exclusive is basically an impossibility and unwise, and we should junk the whole thing, and Marsh was wrongly decided. So let's bracket that for a second. Because I think that's a realistic possibility, which we could talk about. But let's let's bracket that right before we bracket it. Just let me say one thing about it, right. it because it actually is All a right. difficult. It's a difficult question. Well, I mean, I I felt my I, I at one point found myself imagining whether uh, or wondering if 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 endorsing secularism is itself problematic. Why wouldn't one argue that the establishment clause actually requires that there be opening prayers? such that their town isn't constantly endorsing secularism by failing to have a prayer. Uh, so I think yeah. you're, what you just said about bracketing is actually we're bracketing a significant question, and I'm agreeing that it should be bracketed right. this, for purposes this, of this, this conversation. This picks up on something we can talk about when we get to the deeper mm -hmm. layer of this. You know, This right. is the, the Calabresi affirmative action understanding of secularism, mm -hmm. uh, which I think is very interesting, and uh, we, can, we can talk about. Um, I'm, I'm my, not, my I'm not persuaded, but, but I hear you. I hear you. That I, I, it's not trivial to raise the question, isn't prayer required? Fine. So, but let's so let, let's all right. So let's bracket that, but keep that in mind. Uh, um, let, here's a procedure that I think would have satisfied everybody, <clears throat> and it depends on a certain result. So, if they had actually sought out uh, a diverse range of religions, had they actually gotten responses from a diverse range of religious practitioners, if there were this rotating carousel which represented almost everyone in the town. And here's the key. At the beginning of each meeting, the city, uh, the, the, the mayor, the, you know, what, the, the, whatever they call it uh, uh, in, in the particular jurisdiction, gets up and says, we are, you know, here's our practice, right? We solicit uh, various religious practitioners to open it. We understand that, that uh, and all the kinds of things that Kennedy talks about in his opinion, right. about the importance of focusing the mind on a higher purpose, and that in that spirit, we are doing prayers, which may or may not be helpful or important to various attendees, but we are working at inclusion. No one should feel compelled to do this. No, you know, a disclaimer, yeah. right? Were there such a disclaimer and an explication of the process? So that, suppose that I show up to get my uh, <laughs> variants at, at a town, and in fact, um, uh, that week, and maybe every week for the past uh, decade, there has been a Muslim imam giving uh, uh, an opening prayer because that's all the only person who's responded. And, uh, um, and they're, they're, you know, I, I would be thinking to myself, oh my goodness, you know, this is not, uh, this is not my religion. Uh, I, I might, uh, um, and I might feel excluded. However, if there was an explanation at the beginning that in fact, just because this person is here this time does not mean that this is the, the, the ultimate religious view of the city. In fact, we rotate around, we invite you if you have 
a particular community that you would like to see represented, give us their names. Uh, we think that this serves a purpose other than proselytizing. You know, there's some clear explanation. That might, that, that might appeal to everyone, again, bracketing the idea that we shouldn't get in this business at all. Is that, am I correct about that, Nathan, you think? Oh, I, I, it seems to me like that's Kagan's, uh, I think far less than that would have satisfied what Kagan, um, suggested, in fact. I mean, I, I, and therefore the majority wouldn't have objected either. Yeah, they yeah, would, they're not going to require it, but they yeah, wouldn't yeah. find it objectionable. Yeah, I think everybody would be fine with that. And I think everybody would be fine with less. I mean, in the sense that I think, I think that they're, the well, but it the, the range of disagreement the, is actually quite narrow, and I, I think in this this case, which is, you know, did they do enough to to um, proactively include non Christian voices in the prayer time? And uh, and and the reason it's and, that non Christian is important is because it just so happens this is a town where the majority is Christian and the majority of yeah, the prayers were Christian. Yeah, the, I mean the 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 numbers are like really I think quite important for what Kennedy's doing. You know, you know, it's like. The largest minority, religious minority, is a Jewish minority of three percent in the town, and there are no synagogues in town. There are three in Rochester, which is adjacent um, to Greece, and you know the what Breyer. I, I I can't remember exactly whether Breyer and Kagan both hit on this, but you know part of what they say is well, you could have just called you know those synagogues if you really wanted to get somebody. Um, you, they could have put a, something on their website saying, you know, we, we accept all comers for right. prayer time. Or, or And given that they're announcing the meetings on the website, yeah. saying they could have yeah. put on the website, we, we welcome other... It's, 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 to me, that is far from you a stray observation, actually. I no, think, no, I don't think it is a stray... But, I, I, but it is far less, I think, than going through oh, a, rig, a rigmarole every time you absolutely. do a prayer saying, you know, whatever you do, don't feel uncomfortable now. Yeah, so that was sort of your your description was actually quite a quite maximalist yeah, in a yeah. sense description of I what think, you well, I, I, but I you know I think so I actually think that you, one could describe the differences as as quibblings over small differences in procedural mechanics. Yeah, oh yeah. I actually think that the difference is rather vast and is expressed in this case as a an apparent quibbling over procedural mechanics. Um and so what is because the there is a, what is the difference and why isn't it because I think, uh, as vastly as it is? well because I think the approach of <laughs> the approach of Kennedy is basically to permit uh, um, the inclusion within governmental activity of religious activity when there is a what looks to him like a free market in that religious activity. This is really I think a case about uh, about faith in markets to provide good answers. To things, huh. and um, and I think that Kagan's approach is to be wary, especially in this area of market failures. And in fact, the way this market works, right, is that the fewer Jewish residents there are, so long as there are more than zero, the greater the danger of because exclu- that's the danger, right? The danger is that a citizen will feel excluded uh-huh. because of majority practice. It, it is the, <clears throat> the desire of majority to define itself, right, mm-hmm. through these opening prayers, right? Mm-hmm. It's not just calling us to being mindful of a of a higher calling, a higher calling in kind of secular humanist terms, mm-hmm. right? But a, a self definitional process they go through, and that the danger that it's perceived in that way increases, I think, as the majority becomes more and more uniform. And so markets, one, you know, I think for, for those on the other side, are actually anathema to the project of 
civic inclusion of religious viewpoints Mm -hmm. because markets of course work according to majorities right they are they are responsive to majority power Uh, that's what markets do yeah um first of all i you know i don't i see why you're saying that i think about the way that they've conceived of these things but i see ways in which both kennedy and kagan write and the language they use about their concerns in the cases that strikes me as um, different from that. And then I, I think more fundamentally, I, I think I rebel against this notion that um, a bunch of different Christians together as a majority equals a sort of uniform religion. Um, now it, it feels like that more now than it would have 200 years ago, you know, yeah. 200 years ago, the difference between a Baptist and a Methodist were, you know, you know, could lead to fisticuffs. Right. Um, whereas now, because there's such a wider array of diversity, they seem much closer right. uh, together. But there's still going to be the case, as you mentioned, that there are going to be people who are, who sociologists uh, put together in the Christian box, um, who hear a prayer given by someone else that the sociologist has put in a Christian box. Who, who is like, that's not... That's, <laughs> they feel like walking out of the room. Yeah, those aren't yeah. my people, you know, right, kind right, of thing. Right, right, um, and, and I, if, if I don't feel like walking out of the room, it's, at least I'm tolerating this. Uh, right. You know, um, so that, I don't think that... I mean, none of the justices talk about that. I actually think that would have been an interesting point to make. None of them do. Um, but and, and they don't, I think, for a wide variety of reasons. But <clears throat> back to your market point, um, Kennedy's clearly concerned about coercion principally, you know, right. and that's been a, bang, a drum he's been banging in establishment clause cases for a while. And with, can I just interject with that? Yeah, Particularly please. in the Lee versus Wiseman case, right? So Kennedy yeah. will, will find an establishment clause violation in the context of religious activity in a public, in, in a governmental context that involves children mm-hmm. who Kennedy perceives as kind of, you know, again, I think you, you can kind of pick up on this mm-hmm. uh, and maybe disagree with it. The children are not really like eligible to participate in the market. They're not fully formed to express their preferences in market terms and so can't make these kinds of choices. And so he sees implicit or at least enough so that we should just assume coercion in a kind of pre 18 year old context. Um, and, and, and therefore strikes down graduation prayers in schools, but is perfectly comfortable with, uh, with this kind of prayer. State mandated graduation prayers in schools. Yeah. Yeah. I, but also Santa Fe, right? Santa Fe was, uh, yeah, the, the school, this is a fo- school football. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Fo- football prayers. Right. Um, so the, <clears throat> I mean, I, again, so you can characterize that as, as him acknowledging, a a market failure and then accounting for it in his own sort of market theory of establishment clause stuff. I, j- I think, and I'm going to use this as a way to a jumping point to go to the broader question you had about sort Great. of first principles on the establishment clause. Um, I think Kennedy for a long time has, in the absence of um, a, a constitutional clause for which there was a lot of debate and um, public discussion at the time it was adopted, um, and which was aimed at a, a, an, an evil that could not have possibly existed before. There was no federal government before, much less a, a national religion. Um and the establishment clause, you know, clearly was meant to prevent the establishment of a national religion and 
to prevent Congress from fiddling with any of the state-established religions. There were, there were, and just to be clear about that, there were state churches uh, uh, at, the, at the time of the founding. There were some. Yeah. Right. And m- m- by 1830, the last vestiges of the establishment were gone. Massachusetts was kind of the last holdout. But the, and the, the way establishments of religion manifested themselves was, you know, it was different in every state. Um, right. And so it's very difficult to say, well, this is, these are precisely the kinds of things the Establishment Clause was meant to get at. And so depending on one's constitutional um, interpretive theory, you know, and whether they actually— and many people are obviously quite skeptical that justices in particular um, actually rely on those or rather use them as tools to achieve their policy points. But assuming that in good faith they might actually think that determines uh, or at least limits the range of outcomes in a case, um, the Establishment Clause— uh, it offers a lot of clear clues, but none of them basically are real problems today, are likely to be problems, right? So the government can't uh, force you to subsidize a, the clergy of a church, you know? Right. That's, that's pretty obvious. Um, but then it becomes harder to say whether the government can, you know, the, that is now forcing everyone to subsidize all education and, the, and that all of that education is secularized. Um, can the government, you know, also take some money and subsidize the secular components of a parochial education. That's a harder question. That became a harder question in the middle of the 20th century. Right. So we, we just have, we have these questions that are clearly sort of outside the scope of what the text or the original history, um, and really even the tradition, uh, of practice until about 1900 have anything to teach us about because schools throughout the 19th century were, um, we're sort of blandly Protestant. Let me, all state runs. Yeah. Right? Let me jump right. in because I think that, um, you know, a lot, a lot of people, including, you know, Amar, Akil Amar's bill of rights is cited throughout, um, mm-hmm. justice Thomas's opinion in this case. And, and I, I think he's from all that I know is on solid ground in terms of the original, you know, like all of the bill of rights, uh-huh. uh, um, uh, in, uh, these were understood as kind of federalist, uh, federalism provisions in a way, right. They were protecting mm-hmm. against, uh, uh, a federal government which become like King George and and do particular kinds of things that King George did, and we want to protect against the uh, um, um, conglomeration of power in in one big national body. And the states were seen at that time as protectors of liberty. The federal government was a new novel thing to be feared, and so the so the Bill of Rights. But um, the big question, of course, is what happens with the reframing of the Constitution, mm-hmm. the refounders, right, the reframers in uh, after the Civil War who passed the Civil War amendments, thirteenth, uh, fourteenth, fifteenth amendments, and 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 in particular the fourteenth, right, mm-hmm. which everyone acknowledges provides rights, provides Congress with the power to uh, pass laws protecting mm-hmm. those rights, uh, including equal equal protection, due process, privileges, and immunities, mm-hmm. and. Most of the provisions, most most famous recently, the the Second Amendment, the mm-hmm. right to bear arms, has been uh, incorporated against the states as an individual right to to have guns, and the uh, and this has occurred through the Due Process Clause, um, right. time and and time again. That that implicit in due process are the uh, original um, uh, are, are the original uh, protections in the Bill of Rights, right. And and Mar argues it should be privileges and immunities, and and argues for a, a kind of what he calls refined incorporation and understanding. And this is Thomas really picks up on this, right? That mm-hmm. when we decide what a provision of the Bill of Rights means when it's applied against the states, we should look more deeply 
at what the nature of that right is as a privilege and immunity of citizens of the United States. And mm-hmm. so we look at like practice in the territories uh, before statehood, that kind of thing can help right. us figure this out. I want to suggest though, that, and to, I don't know to, how people, to, yeah, just go ahead. You, go, to, put a, to put a very, very clear point on that. I think the, the argument is that uh, one of the things the establishment clause did was leave the States alone with respect to their established religions. And it is incoherent to say that the states are both left alone with respect to their established religions, and we're going to apply that against the states. Yeah, this was Thomas's argument, yeah. right? And um, <clears throat> you know, the Second Amendment arguably is is kind of similar, um, but then a lot of them, like you know, restrictions on on speech, mm-hmm. these were left to the states. And in fact, mm-hmm. the the um, the Southern states leading up to the Civil War banned political parties. They banned political speech. They interfered with. Uh, uh, with with speech right. in churches, uh, and so I think the textual yeah. difference is that the and respecting an establishment of religion. Well, an establishment of religion was referring to the state establishment, state establishments of religion, um, uh, in part, right? And so it was doing two things. It was it was um, saying the federal government can't do it itself, which necessarily is going to leave whatever is done to the states. But it's also saying the the federal government can't. Like, sort of dicker around with what. The Does it matter what the founders thought or what the reframers thought? The founders thought. Um, oh, but th- yeah, that's a separate question. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, so um, we we are so far gone from anything like uh, uh, I, I would posit anything like uh, thoroughgoing originalism uh, with respect to the Reconstruction Amendments. Right. That it's kind of difficult to um, to figure out how to reconceptualize. Much of the work being done in originalist scholarship now is being done in the Reconstruction Amendments, um, precisely for. Uh, the reasons that it, 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 these are important questions, uh, theoretically, um, they're, they go to the heart of what I think motivates some originalists, which is, um, legitimacy. And so if we're going to sort of do the history, right. And do it, figure out what makes some constitutional law legitimate, uh, as done by the courts and others not, then we need to get the, um, the legitimacy of where they're coming from. Correct. Right. Um, I mean, there's a, but I, I, the answer is, I don't, you know, it, that's a hard question. I don't think I, but it is, I don't the have, question, a, right? I don't have a view. But no, I feel it like is the question. No, it, might no, not be. it isn't we're, to me, but it, it is well, to some original. We yeah, up to against, some we're butting yeah, yeah, yeah. up against an, an yeah. anti-pragmatic. It seems to me, but one is butting up against an, uh, an anti-pragmatism problem when one of the things that you purport to say is on the table or one of the things you say is on the table is, well, it may turn out that there just isn't any possible establishment <laughs> clause issue if the actor is not the national government. Right. I mean, that, that's deeply shocking, I, I think, in some way, uh, in a pragmatic right. way, specifically. But this is that's why I think shocking. I, I wanna make, I, I, here's my big claim here. Okay. Here's my big claim. I, that, that the, the, f- <sighs> The fundamental movement of the Civil War amendments was equality, equality of all persons. And that wasn't delivered all at once. We know that, right? We know that there was, <laughs> there was still racial segregation tolerated in the schools. Women were not conceived to be equal. This, this principle, if we want to think of it like a Dworkinian principle, took some time and took some elaboration, but has been elaborated, right? The key is that it is a principle which was latent which was expressed in some ways, but has been elaborated over time, including the 19th Amendment, right? So it is, it is a principle which has been built upon. And one way to see incorporation, and I'm just thinking, I just thought about this. I mean, you know, there were, I'm sure people have written on it and you can probably tell me, sure. is that uh, is 
through the equal protection clause. I mean, privileges sure. and immunity is important. Due process is important. I, I get it. It's all important. But equality does something, I think, new. It, it, it unifies a lot of the Bill of Rights, right? The protection of unpopular speakers, right? Now, uh, um, the, the protection against um, religious orthodoxy, the uh, the privilege to uh, exercise one's religion in the way one sees fit, the uh, principle against taking a property without just compensation, right? That's been written about as an equal protection style uh, um, right. Um, it is a unifying principle which says that we are all equal under the law. It is not self-defining because, of course, all laws are unequal, right? They disc- All laws discriminate. That's sure. If it doesn't discriminate, it's not really a law, right? All laws make distinctions. So it calls for a certain kind of political judgment about which classes are within which classes are within the community of equals mm-hmm. right and and that is a ongoing political judgment of a judicial type i think not a legislative type but it's it involves the application why, why of political judgment judicial type well may, may, that actually that's a good point because you know congress is given some authority here yeah. right to to do that but i, yeah, I think I it's would, a different kind of politics though because it is a mm-hmm. it's a counter-majoritarian enterprise uh to protect Unpopular people to to give people equality when they have been denied it, uh, which is the, the the equal protection clause would only come up if there's been a majoritarian denial of uh, I mean, uh, the only equal protection clause only get, exists because there was a supermajority uh, provision for it. There's uh, a supermajority provision for it for the right. principle, right? For the principle of equality, yeah. right? That's what. And in fact, it was a condition of rejoining the union was to to come in and, and approve this. this oh, well, clause. That's, but that's another art. That's a separate argument about sort of whether it's valid, right? Mm-hmm. But the it, once we've accepted that these are principles that are fundamentally um, promulgated by the people, right? And but subject to manipulation by any transient majority. Mm-hmm. Then the question becomes: What's the best remedy for a violation by a transient majority? Is it a, a, f- a fix by the transient majority? Is it a fix by uh, you know a group of of judges that are sort of insulated from political um, transients? And, or you know, I, I'm not positing an answer. I'm just saying I'm, I'm trying to true trouble to use a, a sort of very high flown and yeah. jure academic word. Your sort of theory of counter majoritarianism. Oh yeah, and, and I think you know. <clears throat> Counter-majoritarianism is it, the judges as a solution of that problem has all kinds of problems itself. Sure. You know, people are writing about this, and uh, and this is, <laughs> and one might also yeah. add that your your approach, to which I'm uh, actually highly congenial personally, mm-hmm. um, is um, it is a caftan originalism. It is not a wetsuit originalism, right? This is, you're not hewing closely to... <laughs> you're going you're to have big, to explain that. You're in this big Omar the tent maker <laughs> special I mean, caftan I, I, of originalism. What happened to the kimono? There's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of flow and play in this garment. Um, it is not a, a, hug, a body-hugging garment of, of originalism. Oh yeah, but I don't. It sounds take, to me like I don't take a yeah him to. I don't take Christian Beatty to be saying any anything that's sort of very originalist at all. Um, but to be saying agreed, more but originalism was got put into the mix oh, a few yeah. minutes ago about yeah. ways you might be thinking mm-hmm. about all this. Yes. And, and and this is your your approach, Christian. It seems to me is originalist in the only in the loosest possible sense. 
Well, I, it's, you know, originalism is a funny word. We're not, this show is not necessarily about originalism, so I don't want to belabor it too much. But, like, it's, an, it's not altogether clear that the people who uh, reframed the Constitution after the Civil War didn't intend to put in place principles susceptible to elaboration. I mean, that's what any smart person would do, right? Is that you put into place a principle <laughs> which appears aimed at current problems, but with the right. understanding that, you know, that's why you, you, you choose words like cruel and unusual punishment, right? right? You, you, that, you know, self evidently, is going to be subject to elaboration in the future because you know we, as Hart says in his volume, we are we are men and not gods, and and so yeah. therefore we don't we can't and embrace it's not all surpri- intentions. It's so, not surprising you know. the reframers use principles, given that the framer framers use principles. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Agreed. Yeah. I mean, and but, they and they also use things like two senators, not a reasonable number of senators, so they knew how to be specific as well as general. And all right. that, I take all yeah. that as red. Here's, here's why I wonder if the and I just want to put this to you. Here's why I just here's why I just wonder if the if the focus on the original intention of the establishment clause is beside the point, right? And that the, the principal problem that people have, and, and all of the talk about this, including in, in uh, Judge Calabresi's speech, which we will link up, and in the opinions, right, is focused on equality. Like, what does this practice signal to outsiders, mm-hmm. right? Um, are outsiders, you know, is, is the insider-outsider distinction reinforced by this? Yeah. Uh, the, your, go ahead. Your yeah. hypothetical, um, I think, points to something that it, to me is um, was troubling about Kagan's opinion, which is uh, I, I think everyone effectively is an outsider um, religiously from the government. I mean, I, I don't think, I think people are trying to, any given group of religious uh, folks may be trying to sort of curry favor or get control of different government levers. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but when the government does religious stuff, uh, I, I think it is difficult for for folks to, for many, many people, uh, to feel like an insider. And I don't know that there's a way the government can do it, whether it's pure secularism or, uh, pure ceremonial deism or pure, you know, whatever count passes as Orthodox Christianity, um, without ostracizing some members of the community. And, and the reason I linked that to, to Kagan's opinion was because, um, the motif that she is developed, that she, draws on and develops somewhat in the, the opinion is of the the person who comes before the government merely as an American or just as an American without sort of their religious um, identity. And that's a, that is obviously a, a sort of political legal fiction that she's, she's trying to make a rhetorical point. Um, but I wonder if it's not a political legal fiction that is just an impoverished view of of humans and human political community in a in a multicultural pluralism. I didn't understand her to be saying that. I understood I understood her to be saying that if I showed up in this town any time during the decade in which week after week or however often they met, monthly. there was a Christian prayer, and I was not Christian month monthly. Yeah, okay, monthly. Yeah, um, and, and I am not Christian, and so to me, all of the you know, if I'm appearing before them, all of these uh, various like uh, flavors of Christianity which were expressed, and I don't know what they all were. Who cares? Because they're all the same to me. Let's suppose, right? So I'm, I'm maybe I'm Muslim, maybe I'm Jewish, or uh, or maybe I'm something uh, which is more exotic. Or if you're an that, atheist, then the ceremonial deism is going to do that to you. Fair, but uh, but here's here's what I understood her her point to be, uh-huh. right? That um, 
that to me it's not that I am an American stripped of any kind of belief in 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 matters of uh, that that would be you know um, matters just of faith or in uh, I, in other words I have all those thoughts and feelings right mm-hmm. I have all the thoughts and feelings that which which you know motivate the mind to consider you know the ineffable whatever you think about faith mm-hmm. um, but that I don't want those particular i'm not there at that meeting for an exploration of those ideas and that um to talk about those ideas even in day-to-day life in this town in which you know my beliefs about those things are in the dramatic minority is divisive which is why we avoid those conversations a lot of the time and so i come to that meeting as an american stripped of religious identity not because i have no religious identity but because i don't want that to be relevant uh, because I want to be treated on my uh, on my rezoning application mm-hmm. as if these issues, these matters of faith, mm-hmm. are not relevant to that decision, right? Well, That's you, I, no, I, I think the best in my so from someone who is not who wasn't sympathetic to it. I think the most sympathetic charitable reading I would give it is is exactly that um, the establishment clause, if it means anything, means that the government can't make a decision about you on the basis of your religion, right? And so. You should be able to come to the government expecting it to be religion blind when you're asking for benefits or when the government is imposing penalties. Um, but th- she was channeling language that um, was advanced by John Rawls, most importantly and, and emphatically, uh, that goes to whether um, it's appropriate morally for people to um, – engage in public discourse with one another um, using religious beliefs and religious illusions um, in a multi multi-religious society. Um, and so whether she meant to be doing that or not, it was, you know, she clearly was taking a side in what was a pretty heated debate for about a decade or maybe two decades um, about, you know, whether, how naked the public square has to be to put it in the, in the language of one, um, one person who responded to John Rawls in that respect. So, um, you know, that, I I think that's why I was as someone who's sensitive to that debate, uh, was put on guard a little bit by, um, and I thought it was incidentally, um, a little bit interesting that Kagan alone, who by far I thought had the most sort of moving and, um, respectful uh, view of the outsider, you know, right. presented in her opinion, made it a point to say that, um, to, to say that she prays daily to say that she mentioned, you know, all for those who find that prayer um, helps to build unity among their, their communities or whatever, like those of us who pray daily do um, in, in like parenthesis. And I, I thought that was, fascinating that that she thought she could do like slip in her religiosity into the opinion uh of a you know that presumably would have been in the opinion of the court if she'd written the majority in a case where she was so sensitive about um people who were not religious or not the majority religion i mean it's a different kind of claim right this is the i think what um what people find or what what minorities might find offensive Mm -hmm. is not that a member of the city council say, you know, those of us who pray daily, um, you know, gather a lot of strength from that. And it helps us reach difficult decisions in cases like the one you present minority member. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it's a little odd and it strikes a little bit of an off note. If, if you are, um, 
sensitive about such things. However, if, I, but it's a, a very that, different. Though? No, it's a very different thing to say. Not that uh, those of us who pray daily feel this way, but we pray daily, right? That that's the objection. the The objection to the legislative prayer is not we. Ga- those of us who believe in this gather strength from this. Mm-hmm. It is to say we, referring you know, capital W, referring yeah. to the town, prays our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, or whatever else was said in these particular prayers, including that and, and, and other things, right? I, it is the claim not of individual strength, mm-hmm. but the claim of what it means to be us. I totally agree. And but and I, I agree with everything you just said, I think. Um, and I may be one of the few people who, you know, is who thinks the case was probably rightly decided as a matter of constitutional law, but is not so wild about ceremonial prayer uh, mm-hmm. personally. Um and so my my question is I kind of thought you might feel that way actually. Yeah, my yeah. my question then is is well which of the solutions that any of the justices offer solves the problem you just identified and I don't think any of them do. I mean my point is there's no way to do it and there's probably no way to not do it as Joe alluded to earlier that doesn't ostracize someone uh, make them you know feel like they're not completely part of the political community. But th- this is um this is part of being part of a political community is you're never going to feel completely part. I don't feel completely right. part of my church. Right, you right. Know, I don't feel completely part of my family sometimes. And it doesn't matter how robust and strong the institution of the community is. That's part of the human condition. Now, and the, the question then becomes like, what should the government and, and then what should the court do about that? Um, and the answer can be based on, you know, constitutional law and doctrine. It could be based on political theory. It could be based on, you know, saying whatever my think political theory says I'm going to do is constitutional law, which is what some people want to do. But the, the deal is getting rid of this um, angst or this, um, you know, it's, it's a very sort of. Well, but it, it, so why, why kind of is problem. let's suppose that everything that Kennedy says is true and that um, it is important to focus the mind on higher purposes and that sectarian prayers serve that purpose although they could become in they could come into conflict with a greater equality norm which finds expression either in the establishment clause or in the equal protection clause itself which again i'm wondering why is not adequate to the task here regardless of the provenance of the uh, of that principle from the establishment clause however mm-hmm. um, do you really think that elito would have written the same opinion if it were a town a small town mm-hmm primarily composed of Satanists with about three Christians uh, and there were no Christian churches within the jurisdiction mm-hmm. and the same thing had occurred. I find it inconceivable. Um, and that's not to call that's not to cast aspersions on, on his good faith. Mm-hmm. It's to, it rather it's to call into question um, whether the principle is truly an abstract one mm-hmm. or whether it's informed by kind of everyday experience. And like, it, it's, a, it's a projection of how we might feel if we were in this minority. And it's very hard for insiders, people who share in great measure a lot of the, the elements of a majority faith, mm-hmm. it's very hard for, for people who share that really to empathize with people who are, again, there for a variance hearing, who are a member of a faith which is only three percent of the population like mm-hmm. like jews i think in in this particular town um i just don't think i think alito's opinion and i'm going to say it I, I think represented a kind of failure of empathy because i saw nothing in it that would that really convinced me that this was a principle that which would apply in a case like that one now maybe i'm wrong mm-hmm. uh, which is why i'm not i'm not calling into question his good faith and in, mm-hmm. in, in, in writing what he did I'm calling into question his commitment in the 
in, in the face of a case which really got him to empathize with a member of a religious minority. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't think I have anything to add to that about Alito's opinion. Um, which was know, a concurring opinion and not right. the majority opinion. Right. Um, right. So he doesn't, so he doesn't elaborate as much about what his theory right. is. He's really responding to Kagan's theory. Right. So it's harder to know. I think and, and harder, he concurs but not in Kennedy's judgment. I mean, or, yeah. he concurs in Kennedy's opinion, and so it's only right. fair to attribute those Kennedy's thoughts to Alito. I yeah, think. well, I take Alito's to be uh, to speak a little bit more to the kind of so what. Attitude. This is not a big deal, right? For oh, Ken- he, Ken- does, right? he does. He he does seek to minimize the distinction between the majority and the dissent right. approaches, and I, in the course of doing that, I the language uh, can I. I Agree with you can be seen, and I forget exactly the words. It may be more than just can be perceived. It may maybe in fact minimizes the um, the the feeling of ostracization, you know, by a right. minority religious person. Um, but I don't. Again, my my sort of position on what I think is an important um, point that the establishment clause is meant to address at some level. I don't. I don't know. I don't. I don't personally think at this level exactly, but. A feeling like a political outsider because of your religion. Um, you know, I didn't think any of them did a bang up job of it, of sort of of deeply engaging with that question. Um, I thought Kagan did the best, yeah, um, in, at being sympathetic in a you know in a sense. But I don't think um, her her answers suggested to me a lack of of um, uh, of imagination with respect to what would happen if those things, you know, if she had her way. Um, so it's interesting. Justice Souter is someone whose judgments I often um, found to be not as persuasive as the other justices, put it that way. Um, but he, I really like him by the way, yeah, maybe but, one of my favorites. As you say, he, he often, I thought did a, a yeah. better job of expressing a deeper sort of, sense of the stakes um the, right. hu- the human stakes in certain cases and I, I appreciate that about uh his opinion writing but do you not think that um i'm going to come to the defense of kagan's opinion which i thought was uh i thought you know and i agree with it mostly mm-hmm. um I, but i thought was also um she's a terrific writer and i think that um in this case and a number of other cases we see the power of stories and narrative and mm-hmm. the, the 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 kind of explicit <laughs> attempt to build empathy in mm-hmm. readers i think is um is powerful i think yeah. it, i think it, it's important um um but the one way to understand that opinion that i think is responsive to what you say mm-hmm. is that she didn't have to go as far to say that marsh is in, is unworkable or that marsh in the context of a town where there's a participatory uh, element rather than just uh, addressed at legislators mm. that that is unworkable right all that she has to say in this case is that there are reasons to think that this procedure branded for a decade religious minorities as outsiders and that if you can't grasp that let me give you some stories and ask you how you might feel in uh-huh. these in these in these instances and these stories were different than the you know, she gave an example of immigration, a criminal trial, an immigration uh, right. proceeding. Uh, so these weren't exactly the same, but they were meant to kind of evoke what would happen if we carried this principle to its logical extreme. The others say this isn't about that, you know, standard kind of back and forth mm-hmm. between justices. Um, but she, I, I think it's not her burden necessarily to say exactly what procedure would pass the bar. 
she does that. I mean, she she does mm-hmm. say there's a line here, but I'm not, you know, again, I'm not convinced that, that Marsh is workable outside, if at all, outside the context of the legislative ceremonial deism, uh, even if the chaplain is, you know, like lots of people in positions, whether the, uh, religiously, you know, uh, um, informed or not, maybe of various faiths sure. or no faith. Uh, but I, but what she says is that whatever that result, whether this is whether a town can really be inclusive, this town was not right for a decade. It was not, and in in for one shining year, it made some efforts, although they were maybe less than she thought were necessary. But even after mm-hmm. that, they went back. So uh, there's a problem here, right? This town has adopted a procedure which brands some people as outsiders, and you have to come with me on this journey to understand what it feels like to be a political minority, to be a religious minority. Um, I took it in that spirit and, uh, and found it compelling, even if I came away from it wondering whether Marsh had any application outside and whether even Marsh itself was a good idea. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you agree, but, um, no, I thought it was a very, um, very interesting opinion, um, as a matter of craft and, um, as a matter of narrative and persuasion. Um, it, you know, I'm I'm inclined to prefer opinions that of, of about constitutional law that look like uh, they're doing ordinary law that don't create a sort of special genre of law because this is constitutional. Um, and the reason I prefer that <clears throat> is because I don't um, I I don't think that the justices have any real. Um, um, great capacity to understand difficult passages of the constitution uh, any more than the political branches do or the states do or towns do. And so um, if it's a coin toss between those institutions um, on a difficult question, I sort of prefer to let the justices let politics take it, run its course. Right. So this is a sort of classic theory and case for restraint, not, not, absolute restraint but a matter of restraint so that's all by background of saying why i prefer lawy looking you know constitutional opinions um and so i when i run into an opinion like the one kagan wrote um and this happens it doesn't matter who's writing it i mean some of the justices tend not to write those kinds of opinions but they all tend to write things that look a little more like that I, i just tend to be um uh, less satisfied with them as a, as a matter of sort of, you know, legal persuasion and legal analysis. Um, and I, I probably got more, um, analogy is a difficult form of argument as well. Um, I mean, it is an inherently, it's an, it's a form of argument that is imprecise always, and there's no way to falsify it or, um, and, and, laws, and yet it is the engine of the common law method. Law is rife with it. Yeah. I was going to say law is rife with it. This is, and so this is how sort of it's This done. case is like this other case, exactly. but not like this other case. But yeah. when you, when you start proliferating that, um, I mean, I mean, then if not only is law rife with it, I mean, law professors do it. This is our stock and trade. Um, but, uh, when, so when she starts an opinion with, you bring in separate factual scenarios that are different and present, you know, different permutations that, then she's just sort of 
distracted a whole bunch of people who are going to be like, well, those analogies are not on all fours, you know, at all with what we're talking about here. Um, and instead of, I thought her passage about the, the person who's sitting there um, who has a zoning variance, you know, issue who feels like they're not going to get a fair shake because they're not part of the religious group that clears that appears to be running the show in this town. I thought, I thought that was a much more um, persuasive way to do the narrative and the sort of non, um, you know, legal quote unquote um, opinion writing. than I found the initial, well, here are three hypotheticals that we're not talking about, but I'm going to use them to try and get you to be sympathetic to how I see this these facts. We're, we're going to have to have I, you back. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Let me make a few points because I, I, uh, in part, because we don't have a lot of time left because of another place I need to be. But um, so in terms of, I wouldn't describe her opinion. I wouldn't describe any of them as having been less law than any of the others um, <laughs> because they all deal with the principal precedents. They all uh, try to articulate standards that can be applied in other cases. Mm-hmm. They all wrestle with the particular facts in this case that make it alike and not alike with some other things they've confronted in the past. So that all seems to me like very lawyerly things to do. And they're all yeah, doing I those said, things. I said less law That's yeah. right. And but, so they're all doing, yeah. they, they, they're all well above the minimum standard of law. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, so I, that wouldn't have stood out to me um, as a reader. And, and one thing that I found very unpersuasive in her account as against Breyer's account is the notion that it would be adequate to confront the defect in the town's conduct. Um, and I did find the town's conduct to be on my understanding of what the establishment clause is about. I did find their conduct to be defective. Mm-hmm. Um, as against Breyer's conception, I don't think it would be enough for them to have said to the same line of people coming month by month to give these uh, invocations to say to them, cool it with the Jesus, be a little bit more to whom it may concern. Right. Cause her story that, um, that that would be an adequate was remedy. Line, was that a line from, uh, from the, the big Lebowski? Oh, maybe cool. No, a- um, a great movie. Uh, so, so to the degree that the, she's the suggesting that abide. that would <laughs> what the prayer will abide. Yes, yeah. um, to the degree that you suggest that she's suggesting that that's adequate. I, I don't. I don't think she's right about that. Um, I think that um, that although that might be part of an answer, it really or, uh, like Breyer suggests a complete way to address this is going to have to include a process that reaches out to many more types of, of invocation givers um, who could also be advised that it's probably best in the spirit of calling people to focus on a higher purpose. It's probably not best to dwell on your particular sects, hobby horses of difference with others. So, so in other words, it could be a good thing to encourage people not to be divisive, but it's far, far from enough, in my view. Mm-hmm. I think Breyer's got the better of that, mm-hmm. um, uh, and frankly, the lower, the Second Circuit's got the better of that, mm-hmm. right? Because that seems to me to be the, the focus they have as well uh-huh. in the Calabresi opinion that you you just have to have people from other places to do this, or if you don't succeed in getting other people to do it, you certainly have to have tried. Which, which to me is what I would highlight as an important way of thinking about this problem, which is once you decide to have these invocations, what do you accept as a government, as a burden to make them 
a, a productive and positive thing in the community rather than a religiously divisive thing in the community. And that when you approach it that way, you actually could make a fair bit of progress pretty quickly in, in getting to a practice that's actually very good in the community. We're going to have to wind up, but I want to say I, and I th- one more, well, two more things. First of all, we're going to have to have Nathan back to talk about this issue about the appropriate kind of talk in law. Yeah. Because um, that, that's what I took your point to be, that there's a, a certain kind of talk which is institutionally better for the Supreme Court when answering certain kinds of questions than other types of talk. And that is, I think, I'm not sure that I completely agree, but I think it's a really difficult uh, question. And uh, and I found that really interesting. <clears throat> and uh, worth lots of discussion. Worth lots of discussion. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to talk about it anymore other than to say that I wouldn't put it the way you just put it. But I know you wouldn't, yeah, yeah. but that's part of our disagreement, I think, is, is uh-huh. if there is one. And I'm not sure there, maybe by the time we get around to it, we realize that there I is not hope, one. I certainly hope there is. Yeah, <laughs> I, I do too. Um, but the second thing is, the, the last <laughs> thing I want, better podcast. The last thing I wanted to ask about, though, is um, I think as in many areas of, of constitutional law and indeed the common law, the our intuitions about how the how a case should come out, our intuitions about where the lines should be drawn if we're thinking more abstractly, mm-hmm. are driven by our levels of suspicion of the regulated entity. And here the regulated entity uh, is a town, mm-hmm. and, and sometimes it's Congress and some others. Um, and I think justices are coming at this from different priors, not only in their levels of empathy with religious minorities, which I think does vary, or in their relative sure. comfort with free markets, which varies a lot. Um, but also in their estimation of or their uh, priors about um, uh, why towns are doing this sort of thing. Why did the town of Greece want to do this? Mm-hmm. And if you think that this is where the lemon test maybe has some purchase, at least in explaining opinions, if not as a good test for what the law should be. If you think that, as one resident of the town said, you know, uh, it is important for us to state that we are a God-fearing people, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and then I'm glad you have the courage to stand up for Christianity or religion or whatever it was that he said. We can all agree that if the town said that explicitly, passed a resolution, we are a God-fearing, we are a Christian town, like this is, we are a Christian nation, like the right. Supreme Court wants to, that would, pro- that would be beyond the pale under almost all conceptions of either the Establishment Clause or the Equal Protection Clause. I say almost all for reasons which we know, but we don't have time to go into. Um, uh, if you think that the the reason for saying it is something like that, you're going to be very suspicious of this procedure, right? You're going to see it because you're going to. Why does this procedure have to exist? Why does why did these why does the legislative why does the legislative prayer have to exist here? Mm-hmm. Kennedy identifies a very kind of um, uh, is ecumenical the right word here ecumenical like enlightenment yeah, compatible it's, purpose. It's a good right. Which I, I think a, a lot of people on the other side are saying, well, that you, we could see a town doing that, but I bet that's not what was going on here, mm-hmm. right? And and uh, and indeed, in Calabresi's lecture, which we'll link to, right? I think he talks about the the rise of secularism, and that at one point, you know, secularists, atheists, people of of extreme minority <laughs> faiths were really an extreme minority, right, and needed some protection. Right from uh, religious uh, monopoly in a way, right, and that that was the affirmative action notion of the establishment clause. That was its purpose as it was transformed from a federalist principle to to something which protected these extreme minorities, and maybe even in the founding era, right. There's a lot. I don't want to go too far in in just adopting this kind of an, this uh, federalist uh, justification. Um, 
uh, but um, uh, um, hmm. I lost my train of thought. Hmm. From affirmative action to yeah, so so uh, right. Um, purpose, purpose, purpose. I'm gonna have to cut this out, Joe. I'm gonna have to cut this out. I'm, I'm thinking of too many things at once. Well, guys, this has been awesome. Well, let me just say one more thing. All right, so uh, it has been actually. Yeah, it has been awesome. Um, Usually, uh, me talking is enough to get him focused on how to stop me. So, <laughs> so, so I'm Kennedy's, happy to Kennedy's enlightenment purpose. Ah, yes, yes. Ken, Kennedy's enlightenment purpose. Yeah. Right. So, um, well, let, let me ask you this way: What is the purpose here? Right? Should the purpose be relevant? Um. And I was kind of leading up to the yeah I know so, sure so, so, so secularism is on the rise right and if you think that what's going on is uh, uh, um, a perceived need to um, protect religiosity from the rise of secularism the, the threat that your children are going to be turned atheist right then what towns are responding to and Joe and I talked about this earlier right is is not so much the absolute levels of religion, it is the perception of what I call the first derivative of secularism, right? The perception of the rise of the new atheist or something like that, or the perception mm. of the uh, tide against religiosity. Is that is that an acceptable purpose? Should we use government to kind of take side? You know, obviously, I'm framing it in a way that the answer has to be no, but maybe there's a different way of understanding the purposes <laughs> here, right? I, th- I mean, the, I think the answer depends on whether we're talking about establishment clause as a form of law and then how you interpret that law or if we're talking about you know contemporary pluralist political theory um i mean the framers certainly thought that a spoonful of religion um really helped the virtue go down and so i i i don't think there's there's a huge i mean a major ideological um vein running through the framers uh you see most clearly in people like adams and and washington um, that religion is a really, really useful tool at the public level because it promotes um, virtue better than non-religion. Um, and particular forms of religion are better than others, right? And so um, now that is not only totally debatable, but maybe even completely falsifiable, right? Right. Okay. But, but if that's... It's the, acceptable to empirical But if that study. is the motivation, yeah. Yeah, right, um, then... It's not then the question about whether that's an impermissible motivation for doing a spoonful of religion in your public life uh, has to turn on whether we're looking at sort of history, what history, which part of it. Um, I think there's no question but what um, some significant you know political figures in American history, including Washington, including Lincoln, um, interposed uh, or interjected, injected. Um, uh, not only certain um, malapropisms, but um, <laughs> certain you know bits of religion yeah. as a way to not only unify, uh, but to unify around a certain rallying point. And the rallying point being uh, sort of you know basic understandings of what count as virtues and goodness and sort of you know the, the character and that kind of stuff. I mean, this is the sort of religion of the Boy Scouts to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, of course, it's reactionary um, in some places right now. I mean, the secularism rising. I mean, that that sounds like you know a, a Newsweek article from about sixty years ago. I mean, the, you know, it's, it sounds like the person who asked, "Do you believe in infant baptism?" and the, the Methodist says, "Well, hell, yeah, I've seen it done." You know, yeah, secularism is not only rising; it's risen, um, and you, you see lots of places pushing back in a wide variety of ways. 
Um, and the answer to the question, is that a permissible sort of thing? Well, if it isn't, then is it permissible for secularism to push the other way? You know, is another way to answer the question? And if so, why is that permissible under the, you know, the establishment? establishment and and here at the end, it? we've gotten to the key question, which we're not going to have time to answer. And that, what does it mean by, what does it mean to say secularism is pushing the other way when what's mm -hmm. happening is not praying? Like, mm -hmm. you know, what is right. that's uh, like, that, that's the question you teed up earlier. That's the embedded in the affirmative action notion of secularism. Mm -hmm. It's, it's very hard for me to comprehend mm -hmm. uh, how a moment of silence or not having a prayer at all is pushing secularism, but w w let's leave yeah. it because I, I, I think that's a really interesting debate to be had. Yeah. And so we're not going to answer it, yeah. are we? My, no, yeah. no, Go ahead. no. Yeah. My, my last thought would just be. You know, we've identified, I think, you, you alluded to this, and it's crucial in these, all of these cases. It's crucial in the Hobby Lobby case as well. And it's sort of any time we're getting these big cultural um, disagreement cases uh, is distrust and, yeah. and suspicion about motives. And the, the, the thought that, you know, what's really motivating this, these characters isn't what they say. And it, you get it both sides and yeah. such that, you know, the movement towards a more um, <clears throat> a more ecumenical public space or more diverse or pluralistic or whatever is going to be viewed as some to be not done in good faith, but with the, you know, the impulse to, um, you know, to influence and subject to change our own like distinctive culture. Uh, I mean, our distinctive subculture, whatever that is to entrench or to attack yeah. or yeah, yeah to, to establish a kind of French laissez-faire kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and I think, I think that suspicion, uh, distrust is, you know, a topic for another, yet another podcast, but it's, it's deeply pervasive, uh, not just now, but throughout our nation's history from the very beginning. And I think it's a, I think it's a good reason to have a, uh, separated government. It's also why it's hard to leave it at theorism, uh, in that, uh, if you think that, uh, majorities will persistently structurally be able to uh, stick it to <laughs> minorities in particular ways mm -hmm. um, that uh, this is the sort of Caroline footnote four idea, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, then, then saying, well, you know, just hash it out in the political branches for the most part mm -hmm. uh, with a very, very distant, way of monitoring the edge of a very large playing field right mm -hmm. um sounds like could sound like um one isn't paying attention to the defects in the playing field mm -hmm. uh, i i think and th sure. so the same stuff that is riven through with this the, the same distrust issues mm -hmm. that sort of pervade all a lot of these debates in uh, their various iterations and manifestations we we will now end this episode yeah with a moment of silence. <laughs> okay. Pray as you like. Or not. <laughs>